Welcome to the I Will Teach You a Language podcast, weekly doses of language learning tips and motivation to help you become fluent in any language. With me, Ollie Richards. Hello. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to the I Will Teach You a Language podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate it. And are you in for a treat or what? I am speaking with my good friend, Alex Rawlings who many of you will know. He's been on the podcast before. He's also been all over the TV and, uh, and the radio. He's a, an outstanding polyglot who speaks uh, many languages, double-digit languages. And he's also very, very humble about it. You won't find a more humble polyglot than, 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 than Alex. And I think that's what makes his advice and his thinking about language learning so compelling. Today, we're having a conversation uh, here in London that we we recorded recently, and we are talking about his new book, which is called How to Speak Any Language Fluently. It is Alex is the latest in a line of polyglots who have been lucky enough to receive publishing deals and to write a book about a book or books about language learning. Benny Lewis published his language hacking series with Teach Yourself last year. Alex is now released a book on language learning. It's it's a very exciting development in the industry. The fact that publishers are willing and keen to talk to people like us who are doing this kind of work and um, to want to to propose deals and and working together. So I wanted to pick Alex's brains about that. We talk about all kinds of things. We, We begin by talking about Alex's upbringing with languages. Did he learn languages quickly because he was a kid? Or was uh, was it down to something else? We talk about the the test that Alex was administered in uh, 2012 to test him for fluency in 11 languages. We talk about the process of writing his book. How long did it take? Was it easy? How did he get the publishing deal in the first place? We also touch on some advice to those of you who may want to write a book. We uh, touch on Alex's work at Memorize and what he's up to there. And then at the end, we talk about... Alex's favorite tips from the book, how to speak any language fluently. Uh, There's a lot of stuff in this book, but I ask him to pick out the stuff that he feels is most important and and really the the, the best advice. So you're in for a real treat. Uh, One thing I wanted to mention is that the sound quality is not the best. We recorded it in a kind of ad hoc style. I'm sitting outside in the sun um, (laughs) here in London and in my office. And so the sound isn't the best, but... The content is uh, is is gold, so um, I hope you enjoy it. Before we begin, I'd like to thank the wonderful sponsors of the show who keep the lights on, so to speak. They are italki, where you can get a teacher who speaks any language, who's from any country, pretty much, so that you can start speaking more and get that all-important practice in. If you'd like to get a free lesson, you can go to iwillteachyourlanguage.com forward slash free lesson. Now, without any further ado, I give you Alex Rawlings. Alex, hello. Thanks for coming back on the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. It's been uh, been some time. Uh, I'm not sure if it's once or twice you've uh, you've been on, but I remember you answering a question about Russian once. Yeah, some time ago, maybe quite near the beginning. Yeah, I think I was uh, not living in the UK at that point, so that was yeah, probably was quite I. a while ago. Yeah, <laughs> I remember recording that in uh, in Egypt. So, uh, how are you doing? How's it all been going? Good. Um, so, I have been back in the UK now for just over a year, and uh, my book came out last month, How to Speak Language Fluently, which was 
the result of quite a lot of years of kind of planning and writing and all sorts of stuff like that. And I'm now working for Memorize, uh, which is a language learning startup based here in London, uh, which won Google Play App of the Year award this year. So, cool. uh, you know, a lot of very exciting stuff happening. Good. Well, you've just uh, given us a snapshot of, what, of everything that's been going on. Um, the book, actually, that's been released is the, the kind of the pretext for this conversation today. Right. We're going to be mentioning it because you have just released a book, but we'll, we'll talk about that later on. Um, and we'll also get to your work at, at Memrise because I'm sure lots of listeners will be familiar with Memrise. It's something that people often mention when, I, when we they email in and they, and they leave questions. Um, but let's just go back a little bit for the benefit of people who don't know you. They may have maybe heard your name around or you've seen videos and things but not necessarily know much about you. So what was your, what was your upbringing with languages? Were you, were you a kid who was surrounded by languages or were you a monolingual kid? Like, talk talk yeah. a little bit about your, your um, upbringing. Well, it's, it's a little bit of both actually. I mean, so I grew up here in London and uh, my mum is half Greek and um, she tried from a very young age to speak Greek to me and to pass that language on to me. But I think like a lot of kids that are brought up bilingually, um, I didn't kind of accept it very quickly. I kind of rejected Greek as a language. I didn't really see the point of it because everybody that I knew who uh, tried to speak Greek to me also understood perfectly well when I'd reply in English. So, you know, what was the point? But um, languages were always there and I was always surrounded by kind of adults who spoke languages and I always kind of noticed um, the benefits they got and I remember being impressed by them. And then one day um, I spent a summer in Greece by the age of eight without... Um, any kids my age uh, who spoke English around me and I just kind of had to take the plunge and kind of start trying to speak Greek to the kids around me in order to kind of have company essentially that sure. summer and um, that's when it all kind of really kicked off for me because I kind of had this thought of um, wouldn't it be amazing to be able to just talk to anyone in the world regardless of what language they speak and you, yeah, and you thought that age eight yeah, I, I remember feeling it quite clearly, actually, because, you know, there were just Greek kids. There were Greek kids, there were Dutch kids, Swedish kids, German kids, you know, kids from all over the world. But we were all at that age where nobody had learned English yet, so we were all really divided by the fact that we didn't have a common language. And it was really frustrating, because it's like, here are loads of people that you could perhaps form a connection with and form a friendship with, but because of the fact that we don't have a common language, we can't do that. So that thought really stayed with me. And I think even as an adult now where people do speak English, it still is a huge motivating factor for me that yeah. I really want to get to know people in their own languages and I want to hear their stories and I want to you know, learn how they see the world. I mean, that's, that's something that a lot of adults uh, and certainly any adults listening to this podcast can relate to is that feeling of wanting to be able to communicate. It's very interesting. I mean, when you said it happened to you at age eight, my, fir my first reaction was, wow, that's really young. But now that you explain the situation, it makes perfect sense. And as when you consider that uh, the, the typical atmosphere of a, a, an English kid growing up in the UK, uh, or I, I guess an American kid growing up in, in, in the States, that kind of atmosphere where you're surrounded by kids who speak a bunch of different languages and, um, and, and not English. In other words, a situation where you're forced to You've got that raw exposure to other languages. It just doesn't happen, does it? I mean, maybe no. it might do it in, in someone like London, but certainly. Yeah, I think part. I think I was very lucky. I mean, um, it happened abroad. It happened on holiday, and I think it happened at a time, like I say, this kind of golden window when you couldn't just go up to someone and expect that they could speak English because, mm. you know, kids around Europe, maybe they know, hello, how are you at age eight, but they don't really know enough English to start having a real conversation with you until they're kind of mid-teens, by which point, you know, 
it's almost too late for <laughs> kind of wanting right. to form those nice kind of summer friendships. Maybe things move on a little bit, but um, yeah, it was it was kind of a very special moment, and that kind of really we really drove me to learn languages. And as a result, I went back to the UK that year and started learning German, and then took it up at school, um, Spanish, Italian, all sorts of little languages. I was trying to teach myself the languages that maybe my friend's parents spoke. And you were doing this aged eight, nine. Ten, that kind of age. Yeah, I mean, not seriously, kind of like it was always fun at age eight. I think there was a gear change when I was about 14, which was uh, when I went to Amsterdam with my parents for the first time, and I just remember hearing uh, Dutch being spoken on the plane as they were doing the security announcement as we were about to take off, and I just thought, wow, what is this language? You know, how in do people... Way <laughs> in, in kind of a very, very, just like... Curious way. Curious way, definitely. Yeah. I mean, it, it sounded kind of like really intriguing that people kind of think in this language, they wake up in this language, they fall in love with this language, and like, you know, I yeah. want to know what's going on. So when I came back from that trip, I bought myself a Teach Yourself Dutch book and CDs and stuff, and just kind of sat for a couple of months and, you know, had loads of fun learning loads of Dutch and then was hooked. That 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 phrase um, is a phrase that I've heard Ed from Memorize use, endless curiosity. Yeah. Um, I think Chris, in a, a couple of episodes ago, Chris was talking, Chris Brown was talking about that phrase that he picked up from Ed, so I think it's quite quite fitting that you, you mentioned that in the context of now working in Memorize. Um, because if we fast forward from that, then you had a, a great moment in whilst you were at university, mm-hmm. which I, I don't know how old you were at that point, um, but you were, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, you were tested for fluency in something like 10 million languages? <laughs> Not quite 10 million. Um, I think so by that point I'd studied about 11 languages and um, I was just browsing the internet, trying to plan my year abroad, uh, trying to work out what I was going to do, see if I could get an internship in Germany or something, and I saw this little advert pop up saying, um, do you think you might be Britain's most multilingual student? Mm. If so, you could win an iPad. And I thought, well, you know, who says no to an iPad? So I applied (laughs) and didn't hear anything for three months, and then three months later, they were like, yeah, we want to kind of do the final round with you, and we've got all these judges in 11 languages who are going to talk to you Mm. over the course of about two hours in all these languages. Um, which I did, which was really, really exhausting because, I mean, I know well, you've you yeah. studied a lot of languages yourself, Wally, but like, have you ever had to use all of them in, like, a two-hour period? It's like... Knowing that you're being tested. Knowing that you're being tested and knowing <laughs> yeah. that, you know, there's an iPad at stake, it's quite <laughs> quite exhausting, but it was fun, and at the end of it, they were like, yeah, well, you know, you've won. So you were, award- you were awarded Britain's most multilingual students. Yeah, that was in 2012. 2012. I guess the obvious question is, well, how... What... I mean, it's quite easy to see how you might have just kind of messed around in, in, a, in a few different languages over the preceding 10 years or so. But what do you think you did as a kid that got you to the point where you, you'd actually be considered, um, I guess we might not use the word fluent, but conversant in, the, in those languages? Yeah, well, fluent, conversant, whatever. But, um, but you, could, I mean, you, you, you could have conversations in, the, in those languages. Sure, well enough to kind of in all of those. So what, like did you, that, what, yeah. what did the, what did the 14-year-old Alex Rawlings do... <laughs> that most people don't. So I think the 14-year-old Alex Rawlings uh, was a real dreamer, and I think I still am in many ways. And I often used to dream about um, moving abroad, about living in different places, about having kind of different lives. And um, that helped really to make everything that I was doing feel very real and feel very necessary, because it wasn't just a case of learning Dutch phrases for the sake of it. I was kind of thinking, well, if I was going to move to Amsterdam and I needed to find a house, I needed to kind of find a job, what are the kind of things that I'd want to be able to say about myself and what are the things that I'd want to be able to do. So I kind of um, unwittingly created these scenarios in which I really needed the language. 
and as a result, that really drove me to kind of get good and kind of almost prepare for these scenarios. Like at home in your room, or well, just well, not just at home in my room. I mean, like all the time, I'd kind of take my books with me, um, read them on the tube on the way to okay. school, and stuff but it's like very that. much self study. Yeah, it was very much self-study. Mm. Um, I didn't know anyone who spoke Dutch when I first started learning, yeah. and I still don't know that many people that learn Dutch. In fairness, it's um, yeah. one of those languages. But it was all, it was really motivated by a dream at that stage to just kind of live in different places and kind of experience different aspects of the world. And then later on, I've kind of the languages that I've stuck with and the languages that I got well enough to pass that kind of test in 2012 and 11 languages are all languages where I have a connection there. So I know someone from that country. I've got a friendship with someone I've been there many times and I'm really interested in the place and that's yeah. really spurred me on to just keep going rather than you know letting it all slide absolutely um, so I guess what that tells me is you're very much qualified to talk about how languages are learned I mean, you, <laughs> that much is that much is clear and it, it's also not the case what's clear from, from listening to you talk is it's not the case that you're a kid therefore you look quickly is it Absolutely not, no. And I think I've noticed my learning um, improve in so many ways as I've got older. Um, I think I've got better at managing my own time. I've got better at managing my own expectations. I've, uh, you know, I've uh, got through the stage where I no longer have to pretend that putting post-it notes around my fridge is, is useful for me because it's not. Maybe useful for other people, but for me, I just know that that doesn't work. So I can get past that one and use techniques that I find do work and that I find are effective for me and just really focus on getting the best out of that yeah and I'd like to ask you more specifically about some of those techniques um, a little bit later on in, in, in the chat um, so if we then kind of fast forward a little bit you're now in a position where you've just released a book mm -hmm. which is called it's called How to Speak Any Language Fluently and is there a subtitle I think so. Can you remember it? <laughs> <laughs> Something like fun and effective techniques for learning any language I mean, how to speak any language fluently is long enough, I think. So yeah, and it's, and it's, uh, <laughs> so um, yeah. I stick with that one. And it's certainly uh, certainly a bold, a bold title. So tell us about that. I mean, how what happened? Because I think you know we had uh, uh, Benny Lewis on the podcast last year talking about this fantastic um, series that he's released with Teach Yourself, and I, and I said at the time, Tim, I think it's really great that um, publishers are approaching people like you and Benny uh, to actually. Um, to, to create these new series, it bodes very, very well for those of us who are trying to, you know, talk about languages and make a difference um, with with our, our experience. And so, I guess at the time of that interview, I guess none of us knew it at that point, but you were already quite far down the line with your own project. So, to tell us about how that um, happened, who approached, who approached who. Um, how did it? How did it all materialise? Yeah, so um, it was shortly after the BBC video that I made, speaking eleven languages, appearing and disappearing, five trees in a park. Yeah, 2012. So just around that time that um, I got contacted by a literary agency. It was quite a small literary agency in central London, saying, "Have you considered writing a book?" And I said, "Well, yeah, I'd love to write a book, but um, I can't really see myself having time until I leave university, which at that point was another two and a half years away." Um, but we stayed in touch and uh, we kind of had meetings every now and then where we'd kind of brainstorm um, plans about what chapters would look like, what you know topics would be like, what titles would be like, you know, and it was actually all a lot harder than it might seem to just kind of sit there and, and produce the skeleton of a book um, like that. 
But we kind of pushed through, and then the year after I left university and moved to Hungary, I kind of focused quite heavily on on putting together a proposal, writing an introduction, and and writing um, a table of contents that I thought would make sense with the help of the agent. And when we took that to the publishers, um, we were basically laughed out of every meeting we had. They were like, no one will ever buy this book. This is not interesting enough at all. This is... So if I could just interrupt for a yeah. second. So the, 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 the people who had approached you originally and the people who you were working with in that time was an agent. Yeah, absolutely. So you didn't have a publishing deal at that point. That no. was an agent who approached you saying, hey, I'd like to help you get yeah, a book Yeah, they were like, we'll help you come up with the ideas, we'll help you write the proposal, and then we'll represent you to the publishers, which is quite a common way to get published. Sure. Um, you, it has its own complications of doing it that way. For example, you need to kind of have an agent we have a very good relationship with and that understands you and understands what you want to do. Um, but the good side of it is that, you know, it can get you meeting some publishers much more easily than if you just email them a PDF of some stuff you've been working on, which they receive a lot of. So. Yeah. Okay, so the, it's a long process then? Very long process. The whole thing is about five years. Okay, and th- five years from kind of me being contacted by the agent to the book being in Waterstones is about, which is a bookshop for those of you in America. Um, that's about five years in total. When did it become? When did you first think to yourself, "Wow, this is actually happening"? Um, when I signed the contract. <laughs> Before then, I was uh, always very skeptical that it would ever happen. Um, which is what two years ago now. So I signed the contract January twenty sixteen. So okay, a year and, and a half ago. ago. Yeah. And at that point, as I said, everything changed in terms of the plan. We had to, so we went from six chapters to 12, and we went from 60,000 words to, I think the final version was about 35 or 40,000 words. So a lot shorter. So shorter chapters. Much shorter. More chapters, but, yeah. but sh- fewer content, less content right. in each chapter. So it's 12 chapters, which have about 10 subheadings each of about two to 300 words per subheading. So the idea that the publisher had, which, um, I wasn't quite bold enough to try myself, was that the reader should be able to pick up the book at any point and read anything, and it make perfect sense without having read anything that comes before it. You know, So it, okay. it's quite a kind of reference style, read it ad hoc thing. Um, but the way I was always thinking about it before was that this would be my piece, this would be kind of my story, and me yeah. writing endless pages of kind of anecdotes about me speaking languages on trains in Russia and stuff like that. Yeah. The publishers were like, that's all very nice, but nobody's going to pay to read that. You know, so we have to rethink. And one very valuable piece of advice they gave me um, was to scan the entire book and delete every single instance of the word I. Right? And they said, the moment you write about I, 50% of the readers switch off because, you know, you're a very nice person, but ultimately they want to know what they can learn. They want to know how to learn, how to speak a language fluently. Yeah, exactly. So find the word I and replace it with the word try, and then you've got a really great scenario, a really great solution, basically, for pulling yourself out of that equation. Okay. Very good advice for uh, aspiring bloggers listening as well. Absolutely. Although cool. I think blog writing is very different to book writing. And I think that's one of the reasons why ah. it took a long time for me to get to um, the book, because I'd been writing my blog and been used to writing for my audience. And then all of a okay. sudden, you need to find a whole new audience. And they're the kind of people who don't necessarily read blogs. They're the kind of people who browse bookshops yeah, looking that's, for that's excuses let's, to spend let's, money. Let's talk about that. So I, as a, as a, as a, as a blogger, um, if I were to write a book at some point what would what would be the, the what's the major shift in my thinking that I need I think um, when you're writing on the internet you're, you're constantly fighting people's urge to click away right you're constantly trying to, to 
hold mm. and hold their attention. And, Which uh, I do very deliberately, I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> well, we all do yeah. when we write on the internet because, you know, we all use the internet and we know how often we just bounce off a page when we don't see anything interesting. Mm. Or, you know, we click on a picture and then we're gone. Um, but when you're writing a book, um, people probably have invested in you already. They've already bought the book and they want to sit down and they want to get as much as they can out of you. So, so they, they want to sit down in an armchair with a cup of tea and exactly. lose themselves in the book. Exactly. So they don't need that kind they're, of teasing and prompting. They're basically already sold that they want to read what you have to say. And they've bought the book. And they've bought the book. Yeah. Or someone's lent them the book. Yeah. You know, so it's not always the case, but generally they've bought the book. Whereas on the internet, they're just browsing and they find you and they think, should I stay or should I keep looking? Yeah. You know, it's a very Three different kind attention of... Three-second attention spans and things absolutely. like that. Okay. And yet, despite that increased attention, you wouldn't write about yourself. No. <laughs> well, I think. Um, Do you think in that in that in that scenario, people would have they'd be more charitable with their, their yeah. attention? I mean, you'd like that to happen, but the problem the, the problem is that when you're going to read thirty five thousand, forty thousand words written by one person, if it's all about them, it gets a little bit boring yeah, after yeah, a bit. It's, it's not Alex Roy's biography. Is no, it? not, <laughs> not yet. <laughs> not yet. Yeah. <laughs> Give me another fifty years, maybe, yeah. and then I have something to write about. For the, but for the time being, I think especially the age thing comes into it because I'm still quite young. That's twenty twenty five now. The time that the books come out, yeah. and for me to kind of sit there, I and, don't even and, remember what it was like to be twenty five. <laughs> <laughs> right, <laughs> for me to kind of sit there and tell people in a book, you know, about my life and my experience can come across a little bit patronising um, as, you know, there's still plenty more to learn and do. Yeah, well, I think that's, that's very, a very interesting thing to be aware of. Um, the, so the book is about how to learn a language, and this, this coincides very happily with your work at Memrise. Very happily. Because, well, tell us about... What you, we were talking about this earlier. What's your job exactly? Right, so uh, my official job... Memrise is quite a colourful company, uh, so they're quite happy to um, you know have fun at all times so I guess we should we should clarify for those who don't know memorize is well what is memorize in a word memorize is a language learning app uh -huh. uh, which at the moment focuses mainly on teaching you vocabulary through space repetition so it calculates um, how long you need to wait before looking at a word again before you've learned it similar to flashcards but similar more flashcards. involved with yeah. more interactivity and moving into the future it's going to be less and less like flashcards it's going to have mm -hmm. many much more exciting features which I could talk about in a minute but um, yeah so Memorize is a very fun company run by Ed Cook you already mentioned mm. who's a, a great CEO and um, my job title is language learner in residence language learner in residence which uh, okay. can you decode that for us <laughs> well not really I mean it was quite an interesting moment having to write that on like tenancy forms and stuff while I was trying to get my flat and <laughs> trying to prove to these people that I could pay the rent um, but basically I split my time mainly with the language research team so we kind of sit there's about five of us and we come up with new learn modes and we kind of test whether a learn mode is actually helping you to learn so whether we learn mode being a learn mode for example uh, a way of learning vocabulary a way of practicing speaking a way of practicing listening um a way of learning grammar that kind of thing those are kind of the four different learn modes as we see them and we are trying to come up with new innovative ways to um learn those things basically um, and our job is to make sure that when you go through that process, you actually learn what we're trying to teach you. And then once we're satisfied with that, we hand that over to the product department who make sure that it kind of fits with the brand and kind of works as a product. I mean, it, researching or studying how to teach a language or how to learn a language is not, it's nothing new. It's been done exhaustively in the past. So is the, um, the work that you're doing there, are you kind of approaching this by thinking, okay, we're really going to crack this, this nut? now and we're really going to figure out how languages are learned in a general sense or is it 
is it more kind of with reference to the particular software and products that you have at Memrise and, and trying to figure out how to how 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 language learning would work within the context and confines of those of that? Do, yeah. you, do, you, do you follow the question? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that is basically the big game changer because you're right that you know people have been learning languages successfully, unsuccessfully for thousands and thousands of years, but they didn't have smartphones, you know, and they didn't have busy lives, and they didn't have all the constraints of living in the 21st century. And um, while the 21st century brings a lot of problems for people, like for example, we see less attention span and all sorts of things like that, it also brings many opportunities to do things better than ever before. So with the current technology that we've got, can we find a way to teach languages that is better than ever before? With the technology that we're going to have in a year's time, are we going to be able to teach languages better than ever before? I mean, once, um, once we start having really cool AI stuff, you know, artificial intelligence, artificial intelligence um, you know, virtual reality, stuff like that, what yeah. would it be like to learn languages with an app like Memorize then? Well, what, what indeed, yeah. So are you, are you, how does that research take place? And are you, are you kind of, is everyone, is it kind of based on just conversations, hypotheses? Are you testing it out with, with, with groups? Yeah, we do uh, weekly user testing um, uh, where people come in and use the products and we are putting together kind of control groups and things where we can see uh, whether they learn the things that we're trying to teach them. We're also very interested in what else they learn while they use Memrise, whether there's kind of any subconscious learning going on, which could be hugely useful for us in the future. Um, and we test it on ourselves. We test it with people in the company, because, of course, not everyone at Memrise is a language person. We have a lot of uh -huh. programmers, techies, marketing people, design, everything. So um, we're just constantly kind of bouncing ideas off people, seeing what works, and then seeing what doesn't work, and tweaking it, and moving forward. Are these control groups something that people, if anyone's listening in London, can get involved with? Um, or is that more of a closed thing? I think we do advertise. Uh, the only thing that I say, though, is that I suspect that your listeners may uh, provide some quite interesting results for us because we're kind of really looking for people who novices. are real novices, people who aren't listening to uh, your podcast, <laughs> basically, <laughs> who no, wouldn't I have the insights that. Um, yeah. that they'd learn from you. Fair enough. Yeah, so, okay. But there will be beta testing and stuff further down the line with further kind of um, features. So just if you follow Memorize on social media, you'll be able to see when that stuff starts coming out. Yeah, absolutely. And we can link to all of this in the show notes as well. So what, what if any, is the connection between the book and your work at Memorize? Well, um, both things required me to answer the same question, essentially, which was, you know, how, how do you learn a language? What is the best way to learn a language? And um, ultimately, I think this is a very personal question. And as I've talked about my own personal story, I've got my own way of getting there. And you do yourself and everyone I'm sure that you speak to has got their own story about how they got there and that's how it worked. But the challenge for a book or the challenge for an app or any course really is to try and find commonalities, to try and find the things that, you know, um, even though it's a very personal journey, everyone has to go through in order to learn a language. The universal. Like, Absolutely. Yeah, they, they do exist, don't they? I, mean, we, we, I think so, yeah. Um, well, so what, what are some? Let's get into some specific. What are some of the things that really you cannot learn a language without? Or, or to put it another way, what are the kind of big buckets that you have to consider when 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 setting out to learn a language? Um, my experience has been that the most successful 
people at learning language have been people that really needed to learn the language. You know, I mean, to put it slightly more crudely, it's people that really have cared about learning the language. Their life has almost depended on learning the language. Those people learn language incredibly well. And that can be know. both out of choice or necessity. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think probably choice is a slightly stronger reason. I think you can grow to resent the language if you're kind of forced to learn it. But uh, people who are learning languages because of love, people who are learning languages because of work, because of uh, immigration, because of um, anything really that makes them get out of bed in the morning, yeah. those reasons are very, very powerful. Now, not all of us have those reasons behind us to kind of propel us to learn a language. So often a lot of the time we have to recreate those reasons and we have to recreate that need that perhaps might not be there organically. And um, we can do that in a lot of ways. For example, daily goal setting that creates some kind of need. Um, monitoring your progress and just saying to yourself that by three months you want to be able to um, hold a conversation in the language. That's a pretty good goal that creates a need. And uh, for me, the very, very powerful way of doing this has been to uh, travel. So to say, right, I'm going to save up my money and in you know, three months' time I'm going to go to Portugal and this is what I want to be able to do. And that really focuses me and it really drives me to kind of get out of bed every morning and get stuff done. Yeah, I mean, all three of those things that you've mentioned are, I mean, I can clearly recognize, recognize those things in my own learning. Although I am mindful of the fact that although we, these things are, are clearly have the potential to be positive uh, drivers for people to learn a language, there are plenty of people who have done those things or do those things and yet in spite of those things still don't succeed yeah. people who, who try it and fail with goal setting people who travel and then just find themselves in an, in an expat bubble speaking English yeah. uh, the first what was the first one you mentioned love uh, having that having that that strong reason the passion mm -hmm. for the language people feel passionate for it and yet after years of studying they still don't succeed I mean I, I have many listeners who live abroad and in, in, actually moved or retired abroad uh, I guess thinking, okay, well, moving abroad will enable me to, you know, I love this country, I'm moving there, uh, the language will follow, and, yep. and it doesn't. So where, where do we move to next after these, after, after the, assuming that these, um, these big kind of buckets or motivators are, don't work, or, or, or we're not succeeding in spite of those things, What's, where does your mind turn to next in terms of solving mm. that, that problem? Does it then become an individual thing? Or are there other things, other considerations? Well, I first? think there is still kind of a lot of fundamental human needs that you can still really take advantage of to motivate yourself to learn language. For example, we have the need to feel entertained. We have the need to be happy. And so if you can find a way of combining the things that you do to be entertained and feel happy with learning a language, then that's a great way to start. And that's hopefully what something like Memrise is going to continue doing in the future, that we're going to have really fun ways to learn the language so it doesn't almost feel like you're learning. You, f you feel like you're satisfying that need to be entertained and feel happy. But on a more individual level, I mean, I, um, I'm a, I love films. I love watching films. I love um, watching TV. And if I can do that in, uh, with films in foreign languages, with subtitles and with all sorts of things like that, then I often forget how much I'm actually absorbing of the language that I'm watching. If I can find a way of combining those passions and making them about languages, then... Um, I, I can often find that motivation which is lacking to kind of sit with a grammar book and study more kind of seriously. Yeah, and I guess one of the things that does come with experience and languages acquired is that you just get to know what works for you, right? And once, you, once you find that thing, it becomes easy to kind of double down on, on those strategies. Okay, so let's talk about some of the specific things that you recommend in the book then, because the, you have got a whole 
series of um, really great uh, tips and pieces of advice in the book. And as you say, it's kind of intended as a, a kind of um, a menu to choose from. Yeah. Right. So you kind of you can dive yeah, in. Feel and out free to discard book. things that you don't think are useful from the book. The my idea was was not to prescribe anything, but really to describe everything that goes on in language learning and and say this is what works for all sorts of people this was what works for me sometimes these are some things that don't work for me and just feel free to explore with these things and just you know have fun yeah but that's also a, it's, a, it's great to have that that different more unique approach because lots i, I guess the, the standard book on this topic is going to okay here's how to learn language read it from cover to cover there you go job done but yeah. i guess with yours it's, it's slightly different isn't it because it, it can function as more of a kind of ongoing source of inspiration or motivation because you can just yeah. dip in and out whenever you feel like you need a little bit of a pick-me-up as it were absolutely and that's kind of why the book is so broad in terms of its approach it's kind of yeah. you think about like um, when you look up a recipe to cook some chefs will be very specific about the order of ingredients that you need to put into the pan in order to make it work and it needs to be eight minutes on a medium heat in order to yeah. work but the reality is there's a lot of leeway with this stuff and um, that's kind of what i was trying to stress in my book that you know always take people's advice with a pinch of salt and bear in mind what you know about yourself and what you know to have worked for yourself in the past and you know the only way that anyone becomes an expert is by playing around and exploring with different techniques yeah so let's, let's talk about a few of those techniques and what, what have you what have you got for us on the menu sure so um when i was growing up and then also subsequently when i was kind of now working in center of london having to travel in to work every day having to go to school every day previously i found a lot of time was being wasted on public transport, um, which sometimes was good because it gave me a chance to kind of wake up and think about the day. But um, one thing that I managed to do, which I found very, very useful, was take advantage of those kind of gaps in my time. The to, so-called dead time. The so-called dead time mm-hmm. to really make it um, just slightly relevant about languages. Just give myself just even a tiny bit of input. Say, listen to a tiny bit of a French song or a French podcast or read some French news or something. And then all of a sudden, that time's not gone to waste. And um, as I explained in the book, there's all sorts of variations on this. You can just listen along and have that input, or you can listen along more actively, which I strongly recommend, and kind of write down new words, write down words that spring out to you as, as um, being uh, ones that you might not have used yourself, expressions, all sorts of things like that. But if you just find ways to use that time in which you're not doing anything else, it makes an enormous difference as opposed to just sitting down every now and then and plowing through. Um, a study session there is a difference as well between kind of having some for example listening to a podcast whilst daydreaming out the window and actually sitting down and actively listening in a more focused way i i I certainly find because i use my travel time in exactly the same way and and i certainly find that you know sometimes if you're daydreaming or you're distracted you you may as well not have done anything because it just yeah i mean you just it's difficult to identify to pinpoint any particular benefit yeah if you can really focus for those 20 minutes and Mm -hmm. do that little bit of active have that bit of active involvement like you mentioned i think i mean to my mind that makes a very substantial Mm -hmm. difference to absolutely and equally i think if you do find yourself drifting or daydreaming don't fight it and don't beat yourself up about it just accept that you know it wasn't meant to be right now just enjoy the daydream you probably need it and um (laughs) come back to it later sounds like mindfulness meditation (laughs) okay what's up next um the next thing that i do is kind of vocab mind maps vocab Um, mind maps so uh this is me prepping basically for scenarios that i can imagine myself being in so let's if we imagine a mind map um we've got the word post office written in the circle in the middle and then all of it are things that I think I might need so stamps envelope queue uh, 
ticket number for the queue. Um, the scenario cash. being that you are abroad and you need to go and and post the letter. Post the for letter, example. Yeah. So I'm trying to think of everything that I can be asked, everything that I might need to ask, and everything else that I may come across. And then there's kind of a natural priority here about things I'm definitely going to say, things I might need to say, things I might come across. And I try and prepare for that by thinking about those things and then looking up what I don't know, seeing where my gaps are, and then kind of um, revising vocabulary every time in a very situationally based way. So thinking, there I am in the post office, These, this is my kind of ammunition, as it were, to get through that situation. Would you still do, I mean, do you still do that being here in the UK now? When I have um, a trip coming up, for example, um, or I mean, well, that's a very specific example we're going to the post office, but let's imagine that you're going to have like a conversation with someone or a, a language exchange or a lesson, you know. You can role play these situations. You can role play these yeah. situations, or you can just think about the kinds of conversations you want to have with whoever you're speaking to and prepare them in exactly the same way. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay. Cool. A similar kind of thing that I do, especially with um, language exchanges and with lessons, is a vocab checklist. Um, so, if I've had words that I've come across recently that are quite new to me, I'll write them down as a checklist and then set myself the task of trying to either tell a story um, using those words in a decent context and trying to bring them all together and force myself to use them quite actively. Or if I don't have someone to speak to, I can write that story down. So doing something specifically with the word, with a set of words that you're trying to reinforce or learn. Absolutely, so absolutely. Because I think um, the real key of the vocabulary is to always, you know, never be too far from context. And sometimes when you're learning a language, that context is not always given to you or it's not always the right relevant context for you. Yeah. So create that context, try to think about ways in which you could use those words realistically. And um, just, it's actually quite a fun task to just tick them off as you go along, having used them. I guess there's also a question there of uh, multiple points of contact, isn't it? The more often you see or use something, the more likely you are to actually remember it. Absolutely, um, yeah. Because it's very very easy to kind of be studying and to have a new word and then think, okay, I've learned that word now, but actually it's not until you encounter it many more times that it actually becomes yeah. embedded. Now, I've also no I've been noticing recently that um, words that I've learned in that way, you also, if you're doing a lot of listening or, or watching TV or whatever, you tend, you will then notice those words cropping up in stuff that you listen yeah. to, whereas you wouldn't have noticed them before, which makes this very nice kind of okay. circle. Yeah, it's amazing how you glaze over something if you don't really know you're it. You're paying attention yeah. to it. But the moment you know it, it really jumps out at you. Okay, cool. what else do we have? Okay, um, so the big problem that we have when learning foreign language is that we are always going to be working from a much smaller vocabulary than in our native language, which can lead to us feeling a little bit kind of insecure, a little bit inadequate about the fact that we can't express ourselves as functioning adults sometimes in the way that we would in our native language. But a really fun way to get around this is to try and think of exactly those points where there'd be a word that you don't know and think about how you can get around it, how you can circumlocute, which essentially is just, you know, speaking around that word, using the words you do to kind of cover, say, 75-80% of the meaning, um, but without necessarily knowing the word. So, for example, gutter, right? I mean, <laughs> very few languages where I know the word gutter, yeah. but very many times where I've dropped my wallet in the gutter or something, and I'm trying to explain to someone that that's what's right, happening. When you need it, you really need it. Right? Exactly. <laughs> but I don't know the word for gutter. If I yeah. did, that'd be great. But I know the word for roads. I know the word for side. 
they know the word for rubbish, water. Mm-hmm. So I can sort of say something like, I dropped you know my wallet. Down. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so I can sort of say something like, I dropped my wallet in that place on the side of the road where there is water and rubbish. And then probably if I say that to a native speaker, they'll go, oh, you mean the gutter? You know, and all of a sudden you've got that word. So it's, it's quite a fun little activity to play yeah. when speaking to native I remember, speakers. I, I remember hearing someone, a native speaker, I was just walking down the street the other day and I, I heard a native speaker trying to remember the word for, for something. I can't remember what that word was, but they were doing exactly what you just what you've just done. They were sort of kicking themselves, trying to remember this word, and they couldn't remember it, and they were uh, they were just paraphrasing in that way, trying to explain what it was. And um, they get the meaning across, and, yeah. and it works works really well. And it's a really great kind of workout for the vocabulary that you have got. It's kind of a really great way to practice some of those things. Yeah, and I think um, that ties very neatly into the, into um, different descriptors of, of proficiency levels as well in things like IELTS exams and things like that. Possibly in the CEFR, I'm not, I couldn't say off the top of my head. Uh, it's very common when you're referencing someone's ability, the, what, what is often described as the ability to paraphrase effectively is yep. a key indicator of your level because it means you just don't get stuck. Yep. So whenever you have that feeling of kind of, oh, my vocabulary sucks or I just don't know enough words, well, can you get around it some way and if you can do that effectively then nothing needs to ever really stop you absolutely and i mean um you hear this a lot when kind of very proficient speakers of english for example speak english you often hear them starting a sentence and then realizing they don't know a word and then very yeah. very skillfully kind of reversing and doing like a three-point turn out of that yeah but i mean they do it very very well and i mean yeah. i hear politicians doing this all the time for example people in the public eye who are speaking english when it's not their first language and yeah. uh, it's uh, such a useful skill to have yeah, I think we have one more before we yeah. uh, before we finish. So the final thing which um, I do a lot and um, would thoroughly recommend is just read. You know, just read, read read as much as you can. Read anything. Read everywhere. Mm. Read all the time. You know, and I think even if you don't fully understand what you're reading, it's just great to kind of practice. I just absolutely love running my eyes over text and kind of hearing the words and, you know, putting them together, realizing that maybe I understand sentences where I don't know all of the words. Really building that skill is so useful. And a a kind of um, a, a web browser plugin that I'd wholeheartedly recommend for reading is Readlang. Uh, is it readlang.com or readlang.net? I'm not entirely sure, but if you we'll, we'll link it in the if you search notes, readlang yeah. or follow the link in the description, mm-hmm. then um, you'll find it. And you just install it on your Chrome browser. And any website you're on, you click the green R button at the top right, and then all of a sudden it's linked with Google Translate, so that you can just hover your mouse over any word you don't know, and it will show you the translation. So ultimately, no matter what your level, you can pretty much read anything on the internet in any language with that tool. Yeah, I would. Uh wholeheartedly agree with that um, so uh, we were saying earlier how I, I found myself a little bit disadvantaged in recent years with the language languages that I've chosen to learn because reading is not one of the natural things to do in those languages especially yeah. Arabic dialects and, and things like that but every time I've um, every time I've gone back and practiced a bit of French or or even when I was trying to pick up a bit of German last year I just found that to be a very very useful tool and I think reading as well is one of those things that um yeah, I, I was. I did a survey recently where I was asking people to describe their challenges in the, when they were learning a particular language, and a lot of people said, "You know, I'm fine when I'm reading, but when it comes to speaking, I'm no good." Mm-hmm. So, like, reading is fine. I can read stuff when I have, because I guess you have time when you read, right? But then, when it comes to speaking or listening to people, I, um, I, I, I struggle because it's too fast. There's too much time pressure. 
and that that makes kind of makes perfect sense. And, and it just occurred to me that it's easy to, to kind of conclude from that that reading is therefore not the thing you should be focusing on. But mm. but actually, it's very difficult to imagine a scenario where you read a ton, yeah, and don't massively improve. Absolutely, and I mean, I think. Reading is such a valuable input source for new vocabulary, yeah. and you know, because like we said, like I said earlier, I think the, the best way to learn vocabulary is in context, and um, the best way to get that context when you don't have it is to read things that take you to places where you're not, you know. So um, they take you to kind of uh, reading a, a book in Portuguese can take you to Brazil with the descriptions and stuff, yeah. and you can see everything that you'd be seeing if you were there, which is enormously helpful. But um, on that point of like the reading and speaking, another thing that I did um, previously was actually read while listening to audiobooks and while listening to, um, well not a transcription, but you know, the MP3, the audible stuff. Um, when I lived in Russia for a year, I got very good at speaking Russian, but very bad at reading Russian because I didn't go to class very much. But when I came back, I had to read a lot and um, it just was a real problem for me to kind of connect the two. And I would have problems reading words that I knew because I knew how they sounded and how to pronounce them and not how they looked when they, they were written down. So by just reading books while also listening to them being read at the same time, I managed to kind of marry those two skills and get them back up to where they needed to be. Yeah, fantastic. I really like those these these five tips you've, you've given us here. And I think what, what's, what's really interesting is that I can see from your approach here that the whole ethos of the book is not although it's called how to speak any language fluently what you're really doing is just providing inspiration and ideas for people to draw on and to uh, to do with whatever they whatever they will I guess absolutely I think um, learning a language is a really exciting and endlessly rewarding journey um, and I hope that by writing a book like this, more people will embark on journeys like that of their own. Wonderful. I confess I haven't read the book yet. My copy is on its way, <laughs> uh, but I will be as soon as it's... Uh, it's still fairly new, isn't it? When did it actually come out? Uh, just a couple of weeks ago. A couple of weeks and ago. And it's not actually out in the US yet. It's going to be released in the US next year, but you can order it from De Book Depository quite easily. So for those people in the US, then how would they get a copy? Can it be pre-ordered now? It, do you know? Uh, I don't think it can be pre-ordered now. You can currently order it from Book Depository in the UK who Book ship anywhere. Uh, yeah, okay. they ship anywhere in the world for free. Um, you'll have to put up with a British spelling though, which will be changed to American so, spelling when it comes out right. in the US. So, it's also going to be released in Russian and Chinese at some point in the next two years too. Okay, so we'll put a link to this to the to book depository uh, for those of you abroad where you can uh, where you can get a copy of the book. It's called How to Speak Any Language Fluently: Fun, Stimulating, and Effective Methods to Help Anyone Learn Languages Faster. What more would you wish for? Fantastic, Alex. Um, it's been great fun to chat. Thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, I highly recommend everyone picks up a copy of the book, not least because it's uh, I'm sure it's going to be great. Although I. Again, I haven't really myself, but knowing knowing you and knowing all your work, I, I'm sure it wouldn't be anything less. But also, uh, you know, I think it's it's so cool that um, those of us who are doing uh, online work with languages have these opportunities, and so I really encourage people to pick up a copy just to support you and, and, and the work you're doing. I think it's a fantastic thing. Where else would you like people to uh, to go to? They would like to contact you or follow you or learn more about you. Yeah, um, I am a big tweeter. A big so tweeter. I'm a big tweeter, so you'll find me at rawlangs underscore Alex. Um, I also am the editor of the Memorize blog, so I occasionally write there or kind of curate pieces for that. Memorize being spelled M-E-M-R-I-S-E. -E. Yes. Um, maybe we can put a link to that as put well. Put a link to that as well. And uh, I've also set up a new website, which is alexrawlings.co.uk. 
alexrawlings.co.uk no longer the old rawlings is still there rawlings is still there but um you know i think i think it was kind of time for a fresh start with the book and everything so alexrawlings.co.uk felt like the next five years yeah you didn't go all kind of uh, new age and go alexrawlings.co or (laughs) alexrawlings.co I think you had to pay a premium for those uh, <laughs> those URLs, yeah. so no. All right, Alex, it's been a real pleasure. All the best, and uh, we'll have you back on very soon. Thanks very much, Ellie. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Um, Alex is fantastic to talk to and a real source of uh, of ideas and inspiration when it comes to language learning. His talk in Montreal a couple of weeks back was also fantastic. Um, have a look out for that on YouTube when it comes out. Now, Alex mentioned a bunch of stuff in this episode, uh, his book, obviously, his website, and a few other tools and bits and pieces. Links to everything are on the show notes, which you can find at IWillTeachYouALanguage.com forward slash episode 216. That's IWillTeachYouALanguage.com forward slash episode 216. So head over there, pick up a copy of Alex's book, and also leave us a comment and let us know what you thought about the conversation, any reactions, maybe it made, maybe it triggered a a flashbulb in your mind or something like that, leave us a comment on the show notes and uh, me and Alex will be looking at those over the next few weeks. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Hit that big subscribe button on your phone or wherever it is that you like to download podcasts. That will make sure that you don't miss any future episodes because we have some fantastic ones coming up. And with that, thanks for listening and I'll see you back in the next episode of the podcast. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. You know, one of the questions I get asked most often about language learning is how to improve your memory. Because things get so much easier when you learn new words and you don't forget them later in conversation when you really need them. So what I decided to do was to put together a a short email course. It's a three-part email course over three days that teaches you my favorite techniques for memorizing vocabulary and actually putting that vocabulary into your long-term memory. It's a short course, three days, it's completely free. And if you'd like to sign up for it, please go to IWillTeachYourLanguage.com forward slash free memory course.